0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, this morning, we are in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58. Cry loudly. Do not hold back. There are certain messages that need to be delivered loud and clear. In fact, there are certain things when you're preaching, you should pound a pulpit. <laughs> you should preach it loud and clear. And Isaiah 58 is one such message. The Lord is commanding for uh, Isaiah to be faithful and to deliver this message in uh, the way that it needs to be delivered. So before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer and prepare our hearts that we would receive the message in the manner in which it should be received. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing that is ours to assemble together, to receive instruction, to study, to show ourselves approved. We do thank you for our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in this Christmas season, we are mindful of uh, the virgin birth. We are mindful of the babe in the manger. But we're mindful, most of all, that the babe in the manger grew up and the man went to the cross that we might have eternal life. I pray that we might be imitators of that man, Father, as we're molded into his image, as we are predestined to be conformed to the image of your beloved Son. Father, I pray that we would be humble before a rebuke, before the message of your truth that is just as rebuking today as it ever was, Father, for those who attempt to be phony in their walk. You, you are the God of truth, and you see through every bit of phoniness. And I pray that we would be humble before you as we learn these truths. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. There are certain messages in Scripture that should be shouted. And uh, we start in the first five verses here of Isaiah 58. Uh, hip, hypocritical religiosity is rejected by the God of truth. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth and hypocritical religiosity defies that hypocritical religiosity is the the same process and and uh, rebellion that has been in place ever since uh, Cain brought his vegetables and even before that when Adam and Eve covered themselves with the fig leaves it is hypocritical religiosity and the god of truth rejects every bit of it so let's look at the first 5 verses here of this chapter we have uh, there's only 14 verses to cover this morning. So uh, maybe it'll go pretty quickly and I'll cut you guys loose early today. What do you think? Maybe it'll take me 12 weeks to teach this chapter. We'll see what the Lord has for us. But cry loudly and do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. They can't be bothered to confess it themselves. So Yahweh himself will declare it to them with a trumpet fanfare. Yet they seek me day by day and delight to know my ways as a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God. They ask me for just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. So you understand, they're happy for the nearness, but it's not real to them. Why have we fasted and you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? You feel like your religion's getting you nowhere? There's a reason for that. Um, Behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire and drive hard all your workers. Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast like this, which I choose, a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? That's the rhetorical question that he brings to a a close there in verse 5. He then answers it himself. In verses 6 and following, is this not the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? And that carries us into the next section. I'll get to that here in a moment. But there's a purpose for the Sabbath. The purpose is rest. The purpose is freedom. The purpose is enjoying what God does on our behalf and celebrating what God does on our behalf, not the hypocritical religiosity that they had turned the Sabbath into. They had used Sabbath uh, uh, adherence as a weapon. They had weaponized Sabbath adherence. And uh, in fact the Pharisees by the time, of course this is long before the Pharisees, but this prophetically addresses what the Pharisees are going to be doing during the life of Christ, during his earthly ministry where they had weaponized Torah to beat people up over the head with it. Not what it was designed to do. And so they delight in their nearness, yet they fail to live out the holiness that nearness demands. There's a certain pride that comes about by being in proximity with glory. Uh, not because you have glory, but the God of glory is your God. <laughs> and Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel, has chosen the holy place the most holy place within the tabernacle, within the temple, to reside on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And you can imagine that becomes a a status, a prestige item, an aspect of praise. Who is like Israel among all the nations that has a God as great and glorious as the Lord God of Israel? And so nearness is a great thing. To be able to call upon the Lord at a moment's notice is a great thing. And we want to thrive in our nearness. We in fact, as in the church, we have a nearness that's greater than anything Israel ever dreamed of. But we don't want to let that nearness um, pollute our thinking or drive us into a realm of of pride, to take us to a place that that nearness should not take us. In other words, the thought that, well, hey, you know, I am close to the Lord, and so he, he'll let me slide on certain things, all right? That because I am so near that, uh, you know, he overlooks certain things. Obviously I'm precious to him or he wouldn't have saved me. Clearly then I get away with certain things. right And that's the expression of carnality that thinks that grace is an excuse for licentiousness. right And if you want more on that, I recommend the Galatians series that we're in right now. That we it was for freedom that Christ set you free. Only do not use your freedom, brethren, as an excuse for sin. We'll be dealing with that shortly enough in the new year and as we move into chapter five. So Israel delighted in their nearness, but they didn't live out the holiness. The fact that God is their God means that they must be holy. Uh, Thou shalt be holy, for I am holy, is a driving principle for Israel under Mosaic law. And uh, we see it here in Isaiah 58, 2, the delighting in their nearness. But we also see the uh, demands of that nearness from, and I just grabbed two, could have grabbed 102 probably, Numbers 16 in Numbers 16 and verse 9, where uh, when Korah rebelled, the principle of nearness didn't bail them out. Just because they were priests, just because they were of the right lineage, um, the rebellion was rebellion. And uh, they, uh, they should have been humbled because of their nearness. So number 16 verse 8, Moses said to Korah, hear now you sons of Levi, is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? I mean, man, look what he's done on your behalf. This is the, the line of Levi that's, that's the Kohath line, not the, not the line of, of Moses and Aaron. In any event, But they weren't satisfied with where they were placed. Like Satan wasn't satisfied where he was placed. So is it not enough that you were brought near? And uh, verse 10, and that he brought you near Korah and all your brothers, sons of Levi, with you? And are you seeking for the priesthood also? Therefore you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. But as for Aaron, who is he that you grumble against him? You're lusting after his position, you fail to realize he didn't earn and deserve his position either. <laughs> right? He didn't God didn't make him high priest because he deserved it or because he couldn't help himself, Aaron was so special and wonderful. All right? And they're confusing nearness with entitlement or or what they've earned and deserved. In fact, it's just the opposite. God chooses the foolish things to shame the wise, the base things and the despised things. He selects the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are. So there's a rebuke there that comes. and That language in verse 9, is it not enough for you? (laughs) That he has brought you near to himself. You're not walking right. uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Another passage that I think addresses this. Verses 7 through 9. What great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call upon Him? Absolutely unique in proximity to the Lord God of the universe is the nation of Israel. Yet, look at how they acted. What great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Understand that proximity is a great blessing, but it's also a strict accountability. You imagine that uh, when it it comes time for the hand of discipline, you might appreciate a God that's a little bit more distant, (laughs) a God that maybe has to reach a little bit further to quite get to you. All right? metaphorically of course he's omnipresent but you understand what i'm saying proximity is a two-edged sword in the nearness of his blessing is also the nearness of his discipline judgment begins with the house of the lord and that principle is there and so when you start banking on nearness you start banking on a positional truth when your experiential truth is not doesn't correspond to it what are you doing what is the reality of that see uh, the Jewish people in Jesus' day thought they could be just so boastful, being sons of Abraham. And Jesus says, "I'm not impressed. God's not impressed. He can make, He can turn these stones into sons of Abraham. Don't think that your your race matters or your, uh, uh, we would say today, uh, you, the church you attend, your church membership. Don't confuse positional reality with experiential reality. How are you now walking in that proximity? You see, phony expressions." Don't produce anything eternal. Phony demonstrations of piety produce nothing eternal. In fact, the the, the transitory boost that you get in a phony expression of piety is all you're going to get. It's like a drug. and And the high gets shorter and shorter every time. Phony demonstrations of piety produce nothing eternal. And you can see the frustration in this here in verses 4 and 5 and and you'll note uh, even the uselessness of it in backing up to verse 3. You know, why have we fasted and you do not see? Kind of seems, God, we're pretty religious here today and you're not answering our prayers fast enough. You know, we're fasting, we've given up food, we've given up tasty things and and, uh, we're not seeing the return on our investment here. We're not, you know, we've been religious. Why aren't you doing good stuff to us? All right. It's part of those elemental things of the world that we got to do away with. And he says, you fast for contention and strife. You're busy out fasting one another. I can go for seven days. I can go for 14 days. I can go for, uh, I went 13 days once uh, on a military deployment without a single hot meal. You know, I and mean, what do you, you? Why do you keep track of these things? What does it count for anyway? I can Jesus fasted for forty days. Let's top that. And and does that count for anything? Okay, that's coming from the guy that counts all the sermons. Does that count for anything? <laughs> not on a legalism basis, of course not. <laughs> all right, but the, you fast for contention and strife now. If I go down to the next conference and start beating up other pastors that don't have 5,000 messages under their belt, what am I doing? I'm, I'm doing this verse. See, I'm doing this verse. All right, so you strike. You fast for contention and strife. You strike with a wicked fist. You use your religiosity to beat somebody else up because they're not as religious as you. Well, what's wrong with you? Don't you love Jesus? All right. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. So, you know, what are you doing? What kind of fast is this? Is this a fast that I chose, or did you pick this out for yourself? Did I tell you to fast? You know, it may be if the king calls a fast, if the high priest calls a fast, if God through his agents say, we need a season of prayer and fasting, let's get serious about this, then it's coming as a, as a facet of obedience from God ordering his people to do this. As opposed to just people getting it in their own ideas, saying, hey, I want to impress God today with how holy I am, and, uh, and then demand that he gives me good stuff, because I'm, I'm very religious today. And here's what I'm going to give up for, 40 days of Lent. You know, you wonder where some of these things came from. We get over to Jesus preaching on this in Matthew chapter 6, and I said it last week, how many parallels were there in chapter 57 with the, um, with the Sermon on the Mount, Right? In Matthew five, Matthew six, Matthew seven, and so many parallels. We saw it a week ago in chapter fifty-seven. We're seeing more today in chapter fifty-eight, and I believe next week we'll see more in, in chapter fifty-nine. And and you start to wonder how much of Isaiah was had Jesus memorized uh, before he went in and began preaching there in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. But here he addresses these phony fasters, right? Phony, bunch of phonies. Okay, hypocritical religiosity beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them you go into church just to check out the latest fashions or just to compare yourself to the next guy or to what are you doing practicing your righteousness before men i want to show everybody how religious i am what a nice suit i wear how my my pretty wife or my well-behaved children or whatever else and i'm i'm here to show off and uh out compete the others All right, she is pretty. Otherwise, notice though, practicing your righteousness before men. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. If that's your motivation, it's wood, hand, stubble at the judgment seat of Christ. There is no reward from heaven. When you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues, in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. All right, if you're back there at the grace box, be, be quiet about it. That's private. That's between you and the Lord. Don't blow a trumpet and shout and say, hey, everybody, watch me. You know, look at these wads of bills I'm shoving in this box here, right? Complaining, man, this box is too small. <laughs> Can we get a bigger box here? I'm so holy. All right. It says, if, if that's why you're doing it, that's all the reward you're getting. When in the last phrase of verse 2 here, Matthew 6, two, truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. It's an accountant term. That's, they've been receipted, okay? Like a CPA that demands receipts. They have a receipt of all the reward they're ever going to get is the G-wow whiz factor of the people that go, ooh, what a holy guy, okay? And that moment of ooh, is all the reward they're going to get. Because there is nothing waiting for them in eternity. We should be laying up treasure in eternity. Our Father sees in secret, He repays. If people down here on earth don't notice, or notice, or whatever else, that's, that's beside the point. When you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's how sneaky you ought to be. Be so sneaky that your left hand doesn't even know what your right hand is doing. Sanctified sneakiness is the is the process there. So that your giving will be in secret and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. It goes on. When you pray, is, is, is prayer a public performance? Are you are you demonstrating to everyone your, your spectacular oratory? Again, people go, ooh, wish I could pray like that. Well, if that's why you're doing it, if that's why you're doing it, then that's all the reward you're going to get. Don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues on the street corners, so they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your inner room, the old King James closet there in that verse, right? Go in your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret. Your father who sees what is done in secret will repay. They're going to be the truly rewarded believers, the invisible heroes of the church age, the great prayer warriors of the church age. Anyway, and then fasting, down to verse 16. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. In other words, don't, don't, you know, some people make that visible display like, man, I haven't washed my hair or combed anything or brushed my teeth. I mean, I just, I look ugly. And, And what's wrong with you? Oh, you know, I'm holy. I'm fasting. Well, if that's the reason why you're doing it, Your fast should be so secret no one else realizes uh, what you're doing. You're the only one that knows. All right, because your Father who sees in secret will repay you. Otherwise, you've got your reward. Again, verse 16, receipt has been issued. You have your reward in full. That's all you're getting. That's all you're getting. These phony demonstrations of piety. Understand, requests are not given because motives are wrong. Well, wait a minute, I thought I could ask for whatever I wanted and it would be given to me. Knock and seek and ask and whatever I want, just name it and claim it. I want whatever. Wrong. Okay? You're misquoting a verse and you're, taking, you're isolating it from other passages as well because you've got to ask according to the will of God. You've got to ask according to His will. You've got to ask in faith, not in lust. Okay? And when you ask with the wrong motivations, God does not listen to those prayers. Not that he cannot listen. He does not listen. And more on that next week because that's a big point in chapter 59. All right. Um, But James chapter 4. James chapter 4 verses 2 and 3. And last week also I mentioned James and how much of an impact Isaiah must have had in James from chapter 57 that could have uh, had an impact in James had he been saved before the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, and you read through the book of James and realize he didn't get saved until after Christ was resurrected. And he was the little brother. You know, he could have had fellowship with Jesus as they were kids growing up. Could have had fellowship with Jesus as an adult. Could have, had, could have been one of the 12 disciples of the Lamb. Instead, he wasn't even saved until after the resurrection. He becomes an apostle in the church age, but he was not an apostle of the Lamb before the, before the day of Pentecost. So here's James 4 verses 2 and 3, and you wonder, you know, had he gotten saved prior to the uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ, what kind of an impact Isaiah might have had even earlier than it uh, than it actually did. But anyway, Hebrews, James, and the New Testament, chapter 4, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? That's the language we're looking at in Isaiah 58 this morning. These quarrels and these conflicts, how it's like you know the dog eat dog world of getting ahead and stepping on other people, is not the source of your pleasures that wage. Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members. Is it about our pleasures anywhere? Is it his pleasure? We're supposed to be seeking the pleasure of God, the things that are pleasing to Him. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. All right, so there it is. The motives are wrong. The prayers aren't answered. You're uh, pursuing hypocritical religiosity and the God of truth sees right through it. He knows your heart. He knows what you need before you even ask. And he knows your filthy motives when you ask. When you're asking with the filthy motives. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? And if you want definition of friendship with this world, we've already seen it. It's the context of of these earlier verses. Quarreling and conflict and lusting and murdering and envying. And that's friendship with the world. You're just acting like the cosmos at that point. All right, requests are not given because motives are wrong. You say, "Well, I've I've been to church, I've been to church ten times already this year. I, doesn't God owe me? You know, you know how much money I gave to the church. Doesn't God owe me? Kind of a thing, you know. It's that sense of entitlement. That's the uh, I can never tell that story. Well, I tell Ralph's story. I can't tell my own story, but Ralph Braun tells the story of a uh, of a man that was very. Uh, wealthy and had contributed a lot to the church and he threatened ralph with it about well i'm going to leave and ralph said well leave and well i'm gonna you're gonna miss me you need my money do you know how much i give and ralph said i don't but my treasurer does and you're going to get that refunded and sure enough he ordered his deacon treasurer to refund every dime that man had given that calendar year said we don't want it it's got to be given right it's got to be given as unto the lord or it does not support the ministry of the word of god all right. Yeah, I love that story and it's not my own, but I, I'll tell it. Um there's more, but I, I'll move on. All right. Isaiah back to Isaiah 58. Love the other story he tells about the madam from the biggest whorehouse in Ketchikan, Alaska. That also is a giving story related to uh But I'll let Ralph tell that next time he's down here. All right. Verse 6. We'll move on to the second part of this chapter here. Verses 6 through 12. See, this pure and undefiled religion, it is the outward expression of a transformed heart. Pure and undefiled religion is the outward expression of a transformed heart. I don't normally like to use the word religion, but when the Bible uses it, I have to uh, conform. And the Bible does speak of pure and undefiled religion. all right? Not as the world speaks of it, but as God prescribes it. It is the outward expression of a transformed heart. It's not doing something phony to try to prove something unreal and try to earn something from God. But it is recognizing by grace what I have not earned, what He has freely given me, and what I want to express in appreciation That's pure and undefiled religion. Notice, is this not the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? As Jesus said, you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into the house, you know, instead of fasting, you should be feasting. Let's celebrate with these guys. Let's share the abundant blessings of what God has provided. When you see the naked, cover him, And not to hide yourself from your own flesh. What are you really doing? You're doing a sackcloth routine to impress people? Instead of How about instead of dressing yourself with sackcloth, you dress that homeless person with what he needs. And so, uh, again, is is it not to divide your bread with the hungry? to, To bring the homeless poor into the house? Let's feast with them. That's better than fasting. And then when you see the naked, to cover them. Not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light will break out like the dawn. And your recovery will speedily spring forth. You know what happens when the blood of Jesus Christ continually keeps on cleansing us from all sin? The blessing and benefit we have for walking in the light and serving others? righteousness will go before you the glory of the lord will be your rear guard and we get to produce this light and in we'll see here in context it's not your light that you produce in your own human effort but it's your light that you reflect It's his light through you that uh that shines forth then you will call and the lord will answer (laughs) all those prayers you couldn't get answered before guess what They're coming now faster than anything, left and right, and it's amazing how fast prayers get answered around here, okay? How faithful the Lord is in that, because the attitude is where it needs to be. So uh, you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry, and he will say, here I am. And you remove the yoke, if you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness. Do you realize what a yoke sin is? What a yoke legalism is? What a yoke the phony hypocritical religiosity is? You know, these legalists that think they can out-legalize everybody else, they're the biggest slaves out there. Get rid of that. Remove that yoke from your midst. Quit pointing fingers at people. Right? Looking down your long snooty nose. If you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire... Look, you've got to give yourself... I mean, I'm okay giving some, some food. I can't eat all of it, but you know, if I, if I give some food, uh, but I've got to give myself? That's what Paul talked about to the, the Corinthians, and talking to the Corinthians about the Philippians, that they gave of themselves first to the Lord, and then they were pleased to give of their poverty. Their poverty abounded to supporting the saints in Jerusalem. But first they gave of themselves. Same language that we see here. Give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. Then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday. You know, chances are good that uh, it's not just physical needs. It's not just hunger and clothing and money and what a earthly stuff. There's a, there's a broken soul here that needs truth and you've got the truth. And the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places. Notice you will never, you know, when you give his grace is sufficient his grace is abundant you're never shorted you're never cheated the lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones and you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail what i think keeps most christians from giving of themselves is because they're thinking of themselves and so they don't give of themselves in thinking of others and serving others in sacrificial love. They say, well, you know, I'd like to, but I just bought a field. I just bought an ox. I've got to try this out. I'll follow you, Lord. But, man, I just, I just got married. I've got to go take care of, of, of the wife. There's always excuses for why these quasi-non-disciples claim they'll be a disciple tomorrow. I'll follow you, Lord, but first I've got to do this. And the same excuses as far as why they won't love their neighbor. Why they won't give of themselves to another? Why would the the nearest kinsman redeemer not redeem Ruth? He said. He said out loud. Okay. He said, I, I got to look after my own inheritance. I got my own son. I gotta. I gotta take care of my own. My own deal first. He said. I can't take on Ruth and 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 have a baby with her and support another generation. And and that near kinsman said, No thanks. Right. What an idiot. <laughs> he could have been married to Ruth. And so Boaz, the second closest kinsman, not the idiot, said, Yeah, I'm doing that, I'm sign me up. I'm going to redeem Ruth, and this is and, and this is the line of Christ. What a what a blessing. So if you think it well, you know, it says if you reap sparing sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you will reap bountifully. This this whole chapter, the whole doctrine here is unfolded in second Corinthians chapter nine. All right, so you can go get those messages off the website. But the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones. You will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will rise up the old the age-old foundations, raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called the repairer of the breach the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. Oh, there's some deep stuff in this. I, I wonder, some of this is, is some of the, um, I think, some of the accolades that will be bestowed upon Old Testament saints, upon Jewish believers, as uh, far as what, I mean, when when we're handing out those rewards with Jesus Christ at the first resurrection judgment, it's going to be these heroes that are going to be receiving this uh, this order this uh this reward called repairer of the breach can you imagine and they get to put that on their business card for all eternity they get to that's going to be uh that's going to be on their uniform they're going to have that rank restorer of the streets in which to dwell yeah there we have it letting our light shine is not to spotlight ourselves for our own glory but shining the Father's light for His glory. Again, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Christ impacted through the message of Isaiah. And we have a reflection of Isaiah 58 in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. It doesn't say, let your light shine because it's yours and you're so awesome. Okay? To Bob be the glory great things He has done. No, to God be the glory great things He has done. Let your light so shine that they glorify your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works, but see it's not your good works. It's the Father working in and through you. And glorify your Father who is in heaven. If your light shines in such a way, they will see that it's the Father working through you. And that gives the glory to the Father. Alright, so Isaiah 58 and Matthew 5.16, what a principle. You understand, a true disciple Receives the word implanted, becomes a doer of the word, and serves everyone but himself. A true disciple receives the word implanted. That's James 1, 21. okay, with humility. Receive the word implanted that's able to save your soul. A true disciple receives the word implanted, becomes a doer of the word, and serves everyone but himself. James one twenty one, twenty-two and twenty-seven, first John three, sixteen through eighteen. See, why did uh why did Jesus come to do the will of the Father? First John three, sixteen through eighteen. Galatians six ten. Galatians six ten. Are we serving ourselves or are we serving others? Who did Jesus serve when he went to the cross? He wasn't serving himself. He was on the cross, not because he needed it. He was on the cross because we needed it. He wasn't there serving himself, he was serving us. All of this is a synthesis from Isaiah 58. And man, think of if, if James would have known this, would have been regenerate to truly appreciate this doctrine before his brother was crucified and resurrected. The fellowship they could have had. James 1.21 says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all the remains of wickedness in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. If you're not humble, you're not teachable. That's why we start with silent prayer at the beginning of every Bible class. Lord, teach me. Speak to me. Humble me. If there's a rebuke in this, I need to hear it, Father. Let me hear it. Let me receive it. Let me receive it implanted. And the deeper it goes, the more it hurts, but the more I need it and prove yourselves, doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. It's self-delusional. These hypocrites are self-delusional. they got all this fasting going on, all this other stuff, and it's phony. But they're self-delusional to think it counts for something. They're a hearer, but not a doer of the word of God. Down to verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their distress, to keep oneself unstained by the world. A doer of the word that's serving others, doing so for the right reasons, for the glory of Jesus Christ, letting the light shine through you. It's not legalism, it's not human good, it's not do-gooderism, all right? But with the right motivation, it is glorifying to Jesus Christ and pleasing to God the Father. 1 John three sixteen through 18 And this is love. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. That's the prototype. That's the pattern. We are imitators. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide on in him? It doesn't. He is the hypocrite from Isaiah 58. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Finally, Galatians 6.10, just in case it's limited to the body of Christ. Now, it starts with the body of Christ. We do prioritize. We do have a starting point. We do have an especially, but it's not limited to the especially. It's not limited to the starting point. It says, so then, while we have opportunity, that's key, If you don't have opportunity, don't worry about it. But if you do have opportunity, ask yourself, is this my assignment? While we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. That's everybody, right? lottie dotty everybody, as my drill sergeant used to say. And especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Notice we do prioritize. It starts here. It starts with us. We take care of one another in the body of Christ, particularly in the flock of Austin Bible Church. So Austin Bible Church, the larger body of Christ beyond Austin Bible Church, but then humanity on planet Earth. A true disciple receives the word implanted, becomes a doer of the word, and serves everyone but himself. And then, of course, eschatologically, this is the standard of judgment, the sheep and goat judgment. Ever do your eschatological studies, your prophecy studies on the judgments, resurrections and judgments? then you've probably covered the sheep and goat judgment. Matthew 25, after God takes Israel into their wilderness judgment, remember, it starts with the Jews. Judgment begins with the house of the Lord. He gathers all of Israel in the wilderness and he purifies them. He sends the unbelievers to hell and he brings the believing Jews into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Then he turns to the Gentiles and he's seated on a throne in Jerusalem and he gathers all the nations to him And we have the sheep and goat judgment of Matthew 25. And in this, what's the standard of judgment? It is the reflection of their regeneracy, the reflection of their salvation that's evidenced by how they treated the the persecuted Christians, the Jewish Christians, and other persecuted Christians in the Great Tribulation. So Matthew 25, and and it's a long section here, but... um, Verse 31 says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. This is not the wilderness judgment of Israel, this is on His throne. And all the nations, or all the Gentiles, same thing, will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And I'm glad he knows the difference. I, I don't know the difference. I just see two furry animals with feet. All right. But there's sheep and there's goats. And he's going to put them left and right. And you'll notice the key is the righteousness that they have. Those that are righteous. And he will speak to the righteous. And then he will speak to the accursed ones. And the standard is whether they're saved or they're lost. All right. But the reflection of that standard is how they lived out their salvation. So when he speaks to the righteous, to those on his right. um, you, You have the term righteous down there in verse 37. That's your big clue. But the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. He's using isaiah fifty eight as a framework for this this particular preaching, right, and the righteous will say, "When did we do this?" He says, "Well, to the extent you did to the least of these you did to me and so we find that this this true disciple that's living the word, that's receiving the word implanted that's living it out in the genuine pure and undefiled religion, all right that will be identified as the testimony of their righteousness when he judges the uh, survivors of the great tribulation. All right, Are we clear on that. The, the Gentiles don't get into the millennium because they did good things. They get into the millennium because they're righteous. They're saved. They receive the righteousness of God imputed to their account. That's simply reflected in how they treated the uh, persecuted Christians, the persecuted Jewish believers in, uh, in the tribulation. When Antichrist is trying to exterminate them, these believing Gentiles blessed them. And they did so as an outworking of their faith. All right, well, I could spend a lot of time on that too. Um, But we have the conclusion of this chapter. What is real Sabbath keeping? What is true Sabbath keeping? True Sabbath keeping. You know, legalism, if all there is is external commands, it it can get kind of simple, and you can do it. You know, Islam only has five things you gotta do, and one of those you only gotta do once in your lifetime. I mean, come on. You know? How easy is it to recite the shahada? And I can voice it and I won't, but you can say words and declare that you know there's no Allah's the only God out there and Muhammad's his his main main guy. All right. You can pronounce the shahada. That's one of your requirements. Man, that's one-fifth of the way to heaven right there. All right? Then you got a little bit of charity stuff, some a little bit of money, not a, not a whole lot. Um, you have to make the hajj. You got to do the pilgrimage. That's only once in your life that you got to get to Mecca, just once. Okay, and actually, if you're disabled or poor you can't, you can have somebody else do it on your behalf. You can get a surrogate to do it. All right, you got to pray five times a day. That's a little inconvenient, especially the the four a.m. one. I, that's that's rough. But um, you know, five prayers a day. And they're rote prayers. You just got to memorize them and and recite them. That's easy enough. What a simple, what a simple list of do's, okay? They got some don'ts, but those are the five do's, the, the pillars, and you keep that, hey. Sadness, though, is that, I mean, who couldn't do that? Anyone could do that. Even though if they do all that, they're still not guaranteed a place in heaven. That's, that's, again, it's the, the tragic part of if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds and you got these angels on your shoulder tracking that stuff down. But if, if, if you're following a system of legalism, a phony can do quite well. He can thrive. He can do better than someone that really believes the stuff. Just an external adherence to, to, to doing stuff. But what is true Sabbath keeping? Because I tell you, the Pharisees kept it legalistically but they broke it every week. You can keep it without fail and and fail to ever keep it. Right? (laughs) Man, write that one down too. Uh, Isaiah 58. If, if, because of the Sabbath, you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day, right. Where are your feet taking you? What direction are you pointing? What are you doing? Are you doing your thing or are you doing God's thing? What's the purpose for the Sabbath? Is it your day off? Is it God's day? If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable and honor it, Desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure, from speaking your own words. Now that's a that's a great big if at the beginning, with a lot of clauses that follow after it. But that's the whole point of what is the Sabbath? Is it about us? Do we bemoan Sunday? Oh my goodness, man! I gotta put a suit and tie on today. You know what a drag that is. But it's only one day. Come on. We were talking this morning about how in the 1950s there were Ben were wearing suits seven days a week. Going to ball games in a suit and tie. Have you seen those pictures? Billy Graham and, and George Beverly Shan. There's one on Facebook the other day. And they're, they're trimming the Christmas tree in suits and ties. Man. Glad I wasn't alive in the 50s. But do you begrudge Sunday? Do you begrudge a day that you don't uh, produce income? A day that you're not pursuing mammon? A day that you're not serving yourself? A day, one day a week? okay? And that's an Old Testament principle. How about today? Every day is our Sabbath today. What do we begrudge today in the church age? But notice, again, is it my pleasure or God's pleasure? Did I come to church this morning because... I'm getting something out of it, or I come here to glorify Jesus Christ and bring pleasure to my Father. Is it His pleasure? Am I calling today a holy day, a delight, or is it just lost time? Man, I mean, for the unbeliever, Sunday's a great day to catch up to what they didn't get done on Saturday, Okay, what is it about this day? All right, honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word. Then you will take delight in the Lord. Now, again, I'm preaching this and I'm kind of mixing my metaphor. I apologize for that. Because I'm preaching a passage that applies to Israel and how they observe their Sabbath, which is strictly speaking, not Sunday in the church, okay? So I am kind of mixing that illustration up a little bit. But the principle is still there. What are we doing and why are we doing it? If we're doing it for the right reasons... Then the Father is well-pleased. If we're doing it for the wrong reasons, we're we're wasting our time. Why are we even doing it? So, then you will take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is, again, eschatological reward for the faithful overcomers in Israel's stewardship for the Jewish rewarded believers in the Old Testament. All right? Are you honoring it for the right reasons? There's reward. There is reward. Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. We should identify with the Sabbath's purpose and operate accordingly. And Jesus kept nailing the Pharisees on this again and again and again and again. I like Mark 2. One of the rare places where I thought Mark put it better than Matthew or Luke. Mark 2, verses 23 through 28. You know, are we delighting in the Sabbath? I think it's interesting. If you don't delight in the Sabbath, then you don't delight in the Lord. A reward is that you will take delight in the Lord. Do you take a delight in the Word of God? Well, then you don't delight in God. All right, Mark chapter 2. It happened that he was passing through the green fields on the Sabbath. His disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of green, snacking in the field as they were walking through. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, they're not working. They're not harvesting a field of wheat. They're not bringing in income. They're not working. They're just walking through the field and grazing along like I used to do as a kid. You know, we'd come in for dinner and we we had to fend for ourselves. And we learned about berries and licorice and other things out there in the wild. All right. And occasionally mom would have lunch for us, but she would, she would fix the sandwich and leave it on a plate on the back porch because we weren't coming back in the house, not until dinner. And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? He entered the house of God. There he broke a, a rule and, and, and he ate the consecrated bread. There he broke another rule. Shouldn't have even been in the holy place at all much less eaten the bread that's not his. He ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except for the priests. He also gave it to those who were with him. And Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Understand what order this is in. You know, we we might say, hey, Sunday church, it wasn't made for you, but what are you made for? So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Matthew 12, verses 1 through 8 is parallel to that. Of course, in the dispensation of the church, we have a daily Sabbath. Hebrews 4. I was trying to communicate this on Facebook the other day, and I'm not sure that the person I was discussing this with kind of caught the drift. Said he wasn't sure what that meant. Well, here's what it means means we have a rest they blew it we don't want to follow that example at the end of chapter three we're warned don't be like them take care brethren and not be in any one of you an evil unbelieving heart that falls away from the living god you and the church don't be like the exodus generation and don't be hardened and the, the issue is unbelief verse 19 of chapter three we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief they were still redeemed None of them went back to Egypt. Every last one of them was a redeemed person from Egypt. But they were walking in unbelief. That's the point. You and I are redeemed people. We better not be walking in unbelief. So let us fear. That's how chapter 4 begins. While a promise remains of entering his rest. We're going to enter into a land flowing with milk and honey. But we in the church enter into a spiritual rest that is the inner peace, the happiness of The rest God provides for the royal family of God in the church age. And not fall short of it. Not fall short of it. It means we've got to unite the word of God with faith. We have to not walk, we have to be believing, not unbelieving. And so in verse 3, we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said. Not we who are regenerate, but we regenerate ones a redeemed people who are still operating on a faith basis. We walk by faith. And when you walk by faith, you enter into God's rest. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, but now it remains for us. So somewhere, okay? If you ever get rusty in your Bible references, use that, okay? The author of Hebrews couldn't cite the verse, but he said somewhere, it says something about a chicken, Okay or somewhere it says something about a sabbath rest but he again verse 7 he again fixes a certain day for the body of Christ in the new testament guess what it's not the seventh day it's today he again fixes a certain day today saying through david after so long a time just as has been said before today if you harden your vo- uh, if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts today a redeemed people needs to be walking by faith. And today when a redeemed people walks by faith, we are entering into that rest. That's why Colonel Theme called it faith rest. So there's verse four, or verse three, verse seven, verses nine through thirteen. So therefore there does remain now a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. God worked for six days and said, that's it, I'm done on the seventh day. He stopped working. What do you and I do when we walk by faith? We stop from our works, even as God stopped and rested from His. We enter into faith rest and we say, it's not me doing this work. It's God who's working in and through me, both the will and the do of His good pleasure. And every time I say that, I have ceased from my work and I'm resting in the faith rest that is our Sabbath in the church age. So the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. And I tell you, there's nothing better. If you're still doing all the work yourself, there's no rest in that. That's exhausting. Human effort, legalism, works, there's no rest in that. So therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall. We don't want to fall short. Let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. And if you need a goad to keep you doing it, the Word of God is your goad. It's that sharp two-edged sword. All right, well, this is our rest. We'll pick up next week, moving on into Isaiah 59. And uh, Lord willing, rapture pending. That will finish Isaiah for the year. We still have, after 59, of course, there there remain seven more chapters, chapters 60 through 66. But they will have to wait because the year is almost over. All right. So we only get through 59 before, before New Year's. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for the rest that is ours. And I thank you, Father, that we worship in spirit and in truth. And we worship in reality, the substance, not the shadow. We operate in the substance and the reality and the spirit and the truth. We're resting from our works even as you rested from yours, Father. I pray that we will understand these things so that we can please you in every respect. It's about your pleasure, not ours. It's about uh, glorifying your son, not magnifying ourselves. Father, I pray that we'll understand what it means to be a doer of the word and not merely a hearer only who deludes themselves. And Father, I do thank you this Christmas season for the birth of your son, our Savior, that he humbled himself, that uh, he regarded equality with God a thing not to be grasped, but he emptied himself took upon the form of a servant, a body you have prepared for him, Father, and he entered into that body in the womb. And I thank you for the, the humility he expressed in nine months of pregnancy, in childhood, in young adult life, to the age of 30 where he uh, stood before you for baptism, for the three and a half years of public ministry, and most of all, Father, for the three hours of darkness on that cross. Thank you, Father, for our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name I do pray. Amen.